0: require all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Just a random couple of like kind of housekeeping details. So I had because I had polled you guys, if you don't know, I pulled all of you on the, or I put up a poll on the community tab of the po- uh, podcast channel where I ask for the questions. And I asked because some of you had asked if I could do themed ones. And so I'd been doing those. And then people were frustrated by it because, oh, I can't ask my question. And when is it going to come up to ask about, let's say anxiety or OCD or whatever. Um, and so then I polled you to see if you would like them to be themed or not. And um, most of you said that you would like there, there to be one themed a month and then the rest not. And so this week's was supposed to be themed about relationships. And a lot of the questions are catered to that. However, um, a majority of them are not. And so I think what I'm going to do here as the person who runs the podcast, I'm just going to make an executive decision. We're just going to go back to you ask your questions whenever you want, and I will just pick them randomly. So the ones with the most thumbs ups for the first chunk, and then the last two will be random questions. So just to let you all know that that's what we're going to do going forward, because it's it's just, you know, it's difficult and that makes it easy. Okay. Now today we have eight questions. Oh, and I also have some exciting news. I have finished all the paperwork and took my test and passed it to get my... LMFT license. So my marriage and family therapy license, the license that I hold in the state of California, I'm also going to try to get it here in Texas. So now I just have to wait and they're supposed to let me know if they need anything else. And I should know in a couple of months. So that's really exciting. I had put that off forever, frankly, because it was paperwork. Does anybody else just hate paperwork? And so um, it also costs money too. I mean, it wasn't a crazy expensive. I think it cost me about $200 total. But it was one of those things that I was putting off and putting off because I didn't, A, want to to do the paperwork or B, have to spend that money. But I'm glad that it's done. It's off of my to-do list. And now I feel so much better. Without further ado, let's get into your questions. Now, question number one says, hey, Katie, thank you so much for everything that you do. Of course, I'm so happy I can help. I have been watching your channel for years and I've been wondering why I can't stand intimacy at all not even being touched in a non-sexual way as being hugged or even just lightly touched on the arm. It makes me feel super uncomfortable. I've never had a relationship because of this. The closest I've ever gotten with a person I've just dissociated throughout and felt disgusted afterwards. Oh no, I can't recall ever being sexually abused. Although my father has set less than a perfect example around what sexual intimacy should look like often acting mildly inappropriate around me, although nothing major. Is there another explanation for this? Now, there were a ton of uh, comments on this, so we'll get into those later. But first, let's just dive into this. Now, I've talked in the past about big T's and little T's when it comes to trauma. Big T being, I don't know, I was in a car crash or our home was destroyed in a fire or I was abused by a parent or a teacher or someone we think of those, or I went to war, right? We think of those as trauma always. People would never uh, question whether that's a trauma or not. You'd be like, yeah, that was, that was scary. It's traumatizing. And those are big T's because they're like, they're big, they're loud. If, uh, you know, a lot of times people see them happen and it affects a lot of us. It's a big, a big event. Like let's say we were in a big earthquake or a tsunami or something. Those kinds of situations, you know, we call those big T traumas. But what we often overlook are what are known as little T traumas. And I don't say little to minimize them. I say little because they're like, they're, they hide. They're like sneaky. We don't always notice them or think about them. And these little T's, while they can have big effects on us, these little T traumas are things like uh, being bullied for a brief period in school, parents uh, getting divorced, having to move a lot as a kid. Um. I don't know, having a parent that's an alcoholic or a drug addict, that can be a big or a little T, depending on what happens. But a lot of times, you know, especially when someone's like high functioning, I've had this a lot with patients whose parents are alcoholics, who still, you know, go to work and pay and do all the things that they're supposed to do. It's still a trauma for the child. And so... In the reason I bring these up is because with the person who asked this question, when they said that their dad didn't set a, you know, set a less than perfect example around what sexual intimacy like and would do mildly inappropriate things to me, every one of those quote unquote, mildly inappropriate things was a little T trauma that you sustained. And throughout your childhood, we're just stacking these little T trauma, we're stacking them up, which leads us to having a PTSD-like response, which I believe is what this is. Because the fact that any touch at all, I would assume is sending you into your fight, flight, freeze response. Other, you know, It's like triggering your amygdala and sending you into this like protect myself at all costs kind of situation. You'd have to let me know if that's what's happening. But the fact that you said you dissociated throughout when you let someone get close to you, just to me this looks and smells like trauma. And so I believe these little teas that you sustained with your father have affected your ability to have any kind of physical intimacy with anyone in your life. Because frankly, the only time that you, exp- or I don't know if it's the only time, because I would hope that you had someone in your life, like your mother, or a sibling, or a uh, grandma, aunt, anybody who offered, you know, positive and loving intimacy, like physical intimacy, hugging, rubbing your back, telling you it's going to be okay. I hope you had some of those corrective experiences, but this might and I again, I have so many questions. This might only apply to men because your father was a man. A lot of times we can have that happen could be anybody older than us. It could be anybody, period. If we had no corrective experiences or no positive physical intimacy experiences, then the only one that we have was traumatizing. Therefore, when we go out into the world to try to connect with others, that experience is going to feel like a trauma. Our limbic system, our uh, fight, flight, freeze, our amygdala, right? The parts of our brain responsible for that fight, flight, freeze, a fawn response are going to be like sounding the alarm. They're like, shut it down. Hence the dissociation. Hence the like, like it being revolting or uncomfortable. It that's that fight, flight, freeze. We're in this, uh, it's that trauma or hypervigilant like response. I hope that makes sense. And I know I used a lot of terms in there. And if you have any questions ever, always feel free to ask, but that sounds like a trauma response. And if any of you out there are struggling with intimacy that we have follow-up questions where there isn't such a trauma response and we'll get into that as well but if you have any dissociation if you have any what i would call an overreaction and again i know i've talked about this in the past i'll have a full video might have come out by the time you hear this but probably not but a full video about how um helpful or actually that video it, it will be out by the time you hear this but the uh even the consideration of the word overreaction, we always say it's like a bad word, right? It's something that we should, it, uh, that's we shouldn't do, right? We shouldn't overreact. How dare you overreact? But to me, an overreaction is indicative of something bigger going on. It's a, it's a little red flag, like, hey, your brain and your body are telling you there's more down inside of like, um, our subconscious, meaning like maybe it's a memory we have repressed, or it's a response we're having that we don't have full control over because it's triggering, you know, a PTSD response. It just tells us something more is going on. And so what's happening for you is an overreaction, right? We're incredibly uncomfortable. And if anybody out there finds themselves experience the, experiencing these like extreme discomfort around any physical or sexual intimacy, know that that is an overreaction. It's not a bad thing. But that tells us there's something more going on. And that is worth going to therapy for, to be able to speak with a therapist, to figure out what that something more is for you. In this case, I think it's a bunch of those little T traumas with your father growing up and the probably the lack of healthy physical intimacy. Uh, I would also maybe hypothesize that there was some m- maybe emotional neglect with that as well. Because if you don't know what a healthy, you know, intimate relationship with someone looks like with hugging rubbing backs like a uh, healthy what i would call healthy parent child relationships not of sexual nature if we don't know what that looks like then to me that that's that screams neglect because every child should know what it's like to be scooped up into their parents arms and held close and to be able to take a deep breath and relax and feel safe um one of my friends, I have a couple of friends with young children, but one of my friends just posted a picture on their stories of Instagram of her daughter cuddled into her chest and just sleeping. And I thought that that's something that every child needs to feel is is safe enough to fall asleep in their parents' arms. And I don't know if you felt that. And so that would be something to explore in therapy. And I believe working through that, the trauma that you sustained will allow you slowly but surely again through like exposure therapy and working on our coping skills and ways to calm our system we can slowly engage in healthy intimate relationships without having this uh overreaction or that trauma response okay now there were comments on this as an add-on this sounds very familiar and i hope this question will be selected well it was i also do not manage to have romantic relationships and i flee when in the when the mood of the room changes, or if the other person puts on the look and is no longer interested in talking, the fear becomes so strong that I think I might throw up and I end up throwing or, oh, and I end up throwing the other person out and ghosting him afterwards. As I am too ashamed of the situation, how do I manage to be less anxious in romantic situations? And how can I manage not to automatically ghost a possible romantic partner when I have messed up a situation again. I would really like to have a partner. However, I have no idea how this this should work without physical intimacy. Okay. <clears throat> because you're wanting this. Now, I know I'm sure some of our um, aromantic or asexual people in the comments will say that like not everyone wants these things, um, either doesn't want a romantic relationship or doesn't want physical intimacy but because this person's saying that they want it and it's a fear-based thing, right? It's not just like, Oh, I'm just not interested. It's like, there's again, this overreaction. If they put on the look, as you said, you become afraid. The fear becomes so strong. Now, again, I'd be very curious about, about trauma in your past. Now, I know you may not think it is, but I want you to really dig in and con- contemplate those little teas that I talked about and see if that lines up. Because the only way to really manage and become less anxious in these romantic relationships is to heal whatever wound or upset or issue this is coming out of, right? If we've been in an abusive like relationship in the past, let's say we had domestic violence either in our home growing up, in our own relationships, again, those are traumas, but that could be where this is coming from. Maybe our family, uh, we were, you know, abused via neglect, like I was talking about earlier, where there was actually no loving care, no, no hugging, nothing like that. So anyone wanting to get close to us at all feels it's just like against it. It just is not right. You know, there can be a lot of reasons that this could be happening. So I would encourage you to be curious, not judgmental about where this could come from for you. Because the answer of how we manage it and become less anxious is in that healing of the real problem. And then building up some resources or coping skills to help us better manage as we expose ourselves a little bit at a time to situations that would normally trigger this response. And so, But we have to do that work ahead of time. We can't just like expose ourselves to things. I mean, there is space for what you call prolonged exposure or um, what can also lead to, not just prolonged, but the word I'm looking for is flooding. When we just like go all in, it's really like you flood your system with something triggering or traumatizing. I personally don't subscribe. I don't use that in my practice. I find it to be very difficult to not re-traumatize. There are very, you know, trained and helpful clinicians out there that can do that. I just don't. So my recommendation would be to do some of the work ahead of time, find some ways to calm our system. And instead of running away or kicking the person out, hopefully we'll get to a point where we might have to step away, say, oh, I have to use the restroom really quick. We do the things we need to do to calm our system down and we return to the scenario and we feel okay. And obviously these are in situations in which we want to engage with the person. We don't feel forced, but you know, we can go back and we can try again and we can slowly become more comfortable and not have such an overreaction. Again, that overreaction is just indicative of something else going on. Now, another person left a comment and they said, I also have no trauma and my dad was literally the best. Um, My parents weren't physically affectionate ever growing up, though. There's there's your kicker. I think they wanted to get divorced, but just stayed together for my siblings and I, if that's important, that is critically important. Anyway, for some reason, I am not if I'm not blackout drunk, physical touch, even non-sexual, makes me so uncomfortable, especially cuddling. I first described it as turning into a mannequin, freeze state. Like I would freeze and become really stiff and only be able to move my eyes, and I would really it would really oh, I would really be in my head. Usually you cuddle when you watch a movie, and it's not that I don't remember what the movies are about, but in a way I don't, but I don't know if it's because I'm dissociating. Yes, you are dissociating or because I'm just so focused on the situation. I mean, you're, you're it, because of the mannequin and that frozen feeling. I think that's dissociation. If you're not feeling that frozen thing, then it could be due to the fact that you're like focused on something else and not on the film. Um, That could be why. Uh, okay. So it says, because I'm so focused on the situation and why I feel so uncomfortable. And I'm usually trying to really focus on not acting like a mannequin or trying to appear normal. Um, And that's why I'm just not focused on the movie. What do you think? Does this sound like dissociation? Yes, 100%. Can you ever have dissociation? Oh, can you even have dissociation if you don't have physical trauma? Yes, you can. I've had some weird encounters with men on the internet growing up, but never touched them. So I'm like, I couldn't have body memories. Okay. Now, overall the lack of physical affection that you receive from your parents means that you don't even know what that looks like and you don't even know how to engage in it healthfully and i would argue that there it may be some trauma because of neglect because your parents might have been so focused on their own shit and i don't know why parents think we're going to stay together for the kids what that really does if you're not working on your relationship is it tells your children that that's what a normal, healthy, happy relationship is like. Because if you think about it, watching our parents' relationship is one of the first relationships that we encounter. And then that's what we start to think and associate with a healthy, normal relationship. And so it's really not good to stay together for the children. It's actually better for you to talk to the kids about what's happening to get divorced and to help them manage that and get them into therapy to manage that. There's no positive divorce fucking sucks. Staying together fucking sucks. But I'm just I just want to tell you that don't think that staying together for the kids is, is actually a good thing. It's really not. Um yeah. So okay. Anyways, that sounds like dissociation. I think there's some neglect in your in your childhood and the fact that you never had healthy uh physical interaction and I think that's where this is coming from. And that cuddling i would assume is because you probably don't like like being touched at all and cuddling is a little more it's funny i have some um, patients in the past even friends of mine who are like if they're having sex they're going to have sex and this person's saying they have a blackout drunk so you can like do the thing but like um loving semi-sexual touch like cuddling was just too much because they felt like people like knew them too closely or were like with them, like getting to know them too much. It felt too personal and caused us to feel too vulnerable. And that was also super triggering. And so explore that a little bit. Obviously, like I said, I think that the neglect from your childhood, no, not getting any of that physical touch from your parents is most likely the cause. Um, but, you know, being curious and not judgmental about our past and trying to figure out where these patterns come from and why we're reacting this way, you might be surprised what you uncover. And I think, you know, doing the work obviously with a therapist is the safest, but I think there is some like preliminary work you can do on your own where you just kind of assess where you're at and what's coming up for you and what, what things you maybe remember from your past and especially around your parents not showing physical affection. I'd be interested to. I always ask my patients this when when that's when neglect. I think is part of it. Is I'm like, oh, have, did you ever come to your parent to receive some physical affection and be like pushed away or shunned or told to, you're in the way? Why are you doing this? You know, like turned down. Um, because that's a trauma too. It can be a tra- a traumatic experience. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Let's move on to question number two. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. Question number two says, hi, Katie. I have a question about conversations about sexual preference. I've never been in a relationship myself. I'm 26 because I'm scared if someone gets too close to me, I feel like I will have to be more into relationships and then there's something wrong with me. Hmm. Interesting. When I get into a conversation, there have been a few times that someone was asking me if I'm attracted to women because they could imagine it. Then I feel ashamed, vulnerable, and become very anxious. How can they see that? I have the feeling that I need to answer even, oh, I have the feeling that I need to answer even though I don't know. Hmm. I really don't know. I can't say um, it that way because then I'll probably start to cry and feel too vulnerable to say it out loud. So how can I best respond to this? First of all, your sexual preference only in it doesn't involve anybody else it's no one else's business other than you and potentially someone you're in a relationship with right other than that who the fuck cares that's none of their business so i mean my answer is like it's none of your business but the real i know that that's i know that that's not going to work so um when people ask if you're attracted to women i think it's fair it depends on how much you want to share but i'm just going to give you some options my mind goes to you know I'm 26. I'm still figuring myself out. It's possible, but I'm not sure. I think it's okay if you really don't know. We don't have to know. I find it frustrating that people in general, I've talked about this in videos like way back, but I find it frustrating that people expect us to have answers and have decided things and uh, all in a timeline that fits for them or for what they think is acceptable, right? Right. You're only 26. You aren't sure about your sexual preference or your sexuality as a whole. That's okay. A lot of people aren't. There's no pressure for you to be like, I like women or I like men. And this is why. You get to take your time to decide. You could also say, if someone asks you, you can say, I don't know. I'm still exploring. I don't know if that's too like, I don't know if that language is too upsetting to you maybe, because it sounds like, you know, you, you just don't really know and you feel ashamed. And so it might be helpful for you to take your own personal time to think about this again, being uh, curious, not judgmental, journaling about thoughts that come up and, and people you find attractive and why um, even exploring like why you feel the need to have an answer. Because I think it's fair if people ask like, um, you know, do you, I could imagine you being in a relationship with a woman and you could say, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't, I don't really know where I stand with stuff like that. I haven't given it much thought. You could shrug things off like that too, because again, it's not their fucking business. Why are people so pushy? Um, but take some time to kind of be curious about what's coming up for you, what you maybe like and don't like, and allow yourself to live in that questioning phase. Um, we've, a lot of people don't know, like in the LGBTQ can stand for questioning. I know some people uh, have told me that they they thought it stood for queer. It's whatever you need it to stand for, to be honest, in my opinion. I think that the questioning component of sexuality is important for a, a lot of us and it's in our development. It's like part of a process that we need to go through and there's no pressure to have an answer for someone. And again, remember we don't have to come out. We don't have to make decisions on any given timeline, right? That timeline just frustrates me. Like we should know our sexuality right away. That's not how it is for everybody. Uh, we should be able to get married if we want to have kids, get a house. Like there's all these things that people expect us to do. Like before the age of 40, I'm here to tell you that doesn't always work and it's okay. We each have our own timelines. We need to normalize not knowing what career you want until you're, you know, 40, not knowing who you want to date or if you want to date until later in life, not feeling the pressure to get married, have a home, have kids. We need to start normalizing people, you know, operating on their own timelines because everybody's different. And I think the fact that this is so upsetting and triggering, I I would encourage you to, if in your area you have availability of these people, but finding a therapist that is sex positive, meaning that they um, are open to different sexualities and different preferences, and they can talk you through it without judgment. It sounds like you already maybe judge yourself enough. Um, I don't know if the Trevor, the Trevor project is a great resource. If you ever just need someone to talk to um, go, you know, just look up the Trevor project online. They have, I want to say chat features on their website. And then I, I think they might have offered texting. I think they opened it up last year. Um, so just that could be a source of support and some somewhere safe where you can talk about all that comes up for you. Okay. And be patient. It's okay. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to know. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, can you talk about how building trust with your therapist is supposed to work? Great question. I struggle to trust my therapist and to know whether or not trusting them is warranted or not. Good. Hmm. That's a good question. In the past, I felt pressured to talk about my problems with my therapist. This was a different one. Okay. And I talked about things that I was not ready to tell them. Interesting. This didn't end well. How can I build trust with a person when I don't know anything about them and their life and their views? How can I trust them if I don't? Oh, if I don't know if they're secretly judging me. Interesting. As far as I know, my therapist could hold the same beliefs that led other people to treating me badly. Hmm. This is interesting because I have a couple of thoughts. Now, just from the, the start, like building trust with the therapist, how is it supposed to work? It's supposed to work. Essentially, because therapy is different and you're not going to know anything about your therapist. Maybe they'll have some disclosures around similar situations they've been in or things that they'll tell you to help you know that they do understand. It's supposed to like deepen the connection and also deepen your like faith in them or trust in them. So there could be some disclosures throughout your therapeutic relationship. However, they should not be early on. I've, I've only disclosed certain things to patients I don't know, months and months and months into seeing them. So back to your question, we build trust in therapy through slowly sharing things about ourselves and things that we're working on and going through and what we're struggling with and having the repeat experience of our therapist sitting with us, not judging us, hearing us and offering support. And it's that repeated connection that we get, right? I share something that makes me feel really vulnerable, something I'm struggling with. I cry in my therapy sessions and my therapist sits, makes eye contact. And even if it's not said through their actions, I feel seen and heard and important, right? And a lot of times therapists will mirror behavior. We do things so that we, we, we mirror your body language. So, you know, we're with you and we offer you know support and we call it like a holding space like your your therapeutic office that you create is supposed to be what they call a quote-unquote holding environment meaning that you can dump all your shit there and we have the capacity to hold it it's okay I can handle it I can hold it here and really that's why a lot of you know, therapist's office tend to be like soothing colors, light, um, soft, overstuffed couches, like things to help you really, li- literally feel held. Um, and so that's really in a nutshell. And I know that's very brief and there's a lot more to it, but that's how we slowly build trust with our therapist. It's not overnight. Although I will tell you that there, you know, confidentiality is yours. There are limits to confidentiality. If we think you or someone else is being abused. And if you are a protected class, meaning a child, a dependent adult or an elder, we're we're mandated to report that if we think you're a danger to yourself or others, you know, there's those limitations to confidentiality. But other than that, you know, it's going to be held in the strictest of confidence. It's you can actually take our license if we shared without your permission. So that can kind of push the trust building more quickly. Like when I start with a new therapist, I'm I'm just dumping personally, because I know I'm not, I know personally, I'm not a danger to myself or others, and there's no abuse happening in my life. So I'm just, I feel very free to share what's going on, knowing they legally cannot tell anyone. And if they do, I'll come for them. You know, that's not, that's not right. So, um, okay, now let's move through the rest of this. So the question that's how you build trust that's how it starts with a the therapist that's how it essentially works right slow but sure you share and they they validate and support and now the feeling pressure to talk about your problems with a the different therapist that's not okay and i would truthfully bring this situation up with your current therapist so that they can help you heal from that because the i i i would personally want to know if I was your new therapist, I would want to know what that pressure looked like to ensure that I don't repeat that because everybody's going to have different levels of, I don't even want to call it pressure, but there it's a therapist's job to ask a lot of questions and to push us to open up more than maybe we might want to not a ton, but a little bit to challenge us, right? Was that the pressure you're talking about? Or was it more? And I would want to know what it looked like, what they said, what was triggering so that I don't make the same mistake. So I would let your therapist know and I would, you know, tell them as much about that as you feel comfortable. And so that's, that will ensure that that doesn't repeat. And then as you start building that and working on that slowly, but surely the trust can be built. Now, the fact that you're thinking, how do I trust them? If I don't, if, um, if I don't know if they're secretly judging me, you're never going to know. It's not our job to judge, Judging actually doesn't get us anywhere, and it actually makes us a pretty ineffective therapist. I think, and so I, as a has a therapist, want to know like where is that coming from? Have you, you know, what I wonder what your self talk is like? Have you ever been bullied? What's our our self esteem like? Because that sounds like a very uh, comes from a place of mistrust and lack of confidence, and so I didn't have questions about that. Where did that come from? And then truthfully that lack of trust and thinking they're judging you doesn't isn't your therapist's fault they haven't done anything it might be your past therapists uh that relationship might be that might be the cause or there might be some other things from your past again that wouldn't that'd be something that i would want to dig into so i would let your therapist know that you're struggling with that and Again, for anybody out there who feels like I don't know how to do this with my therapist or this is really uncomfortable or you have questions about therapy as a whole or you're struggling with the process, that's all important and helpful to bring up with your therapist. I know it seems kind of I don't know, like strange to to ask them about the process, but that's really important and that's the beautiful thing about therapy is that the relationship is different. In therapy, we can talk about the relationship we're building because that is honestly going to show us and well, really, it's going to reveal a lot of old unhealthy patterns or behaviors that we have in relationships. And so we need to be able to talk about it. We need to acknowledge and speak up about what's coming up for us, because that is just as helpful as the things that we thought we needed to talk about in therapy. Does that make sense? I hope so, because I'll be honest, I go to therapy for like, let's say, uh, stress Work life balance, communicating better with Sean. Those are things that I would want to go to therapy for, right? But when I'm in therapy, we might uncover old patterns of behavior like, oh, this is the way your mom and dad engage with each other. Like, that's how I learned that because my parents never fought in front of me, I don't really know how to healthfully address or acknowledge anger. So that was shocking. (laughs) You would think, oh, it's good they didn't fight in front of me. Nope. Uh, Fighting wasn't okay. And so I never learned how to do it. Right. And so there's things that through therapy, I didn't even know were problems. And then I can see how that is actually causing the thing that I came to therapy for. And so in therapy, you might be surprised what comes up, which is why it's important to tell them about the things that are coming up for you now. I hope that that's clear. I feel like I'm talking in a circle, so I'm going to move right on move on to question number four. This question says, hey, Katie, what are some ways to find closure with your trauma after sexual assault if you decide not to press charges? Hmm. I decided that pressing charges could, would be harmful, but the fact that I haven't done it still weighs heavy on my heart, mind, body, and spirit. I would think pressing charges, oh, I would see pressing charges as a form of closure, but in a lot of ways, I really think it would do more harm to take that approach. It can what are some actions someone can take or projects someone can do that feel like closure and healing that feel as monumental as taking the abusers to court and holding them accountable or that feels like setting all of the, um, or that feel like setting all the evidence on fire, but don't actually involve any of that? How do I reclaim my power? Is a great question. Sorry, my nose is tickled because I'm close to the microphone. I get the pod nose. Um. Okay. First of all, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And I understand your dilemma. Now, when it comes to pressing charges, I always encourage people to do it, but don't uh, push them. Does that make sense? It's like, if that's what you want to do, I support you. I encourage you. We can do this. We'll make it work because those fuckers deserve to be behind bars and deserve to pay for what they did. That's how I feel fuck those people. But I have to agree with you that our our legal system, unfortunately, in Canada and the US and even in Australia, I've, I've heard, I don't know if I've heard much about the UK. I was trying to search my brain for a memory of it and I don't remember. But all of the systems of that I've uh, through through being online and through hearing from our community, I know that they're all broken. And unfortunately they make us relive and replay and restate what happened over and over and over to like four or five different people. And every time we feel re-traumatized and not all legal systems offer, you know, a therapeutic person to be there. Some do, some don't. Um, And then having to see them in court because they get a right to face their accuser. And I understand the reasons those laws exist, but also you are like, are you fucking kidding me? That can be traumatizing. And so, I want you to, I just want you to know, long story short, I understand and agree with your decision because you have to do what's best for you. And we're already traumatized. We don't need to, you know, do that again. For some people we do and they want to, and they do it, but others of us don't. And it's okay. Either way, it's okay. It's your choice. That's one way to take your power back is the fact that you made the choice that's best for you what's best for them is someone, you know, punches them in the face, maybe hits them with their car. I don't know. sounds like assholes, but um, you got to choose. And that's, that's some of that power, getting that power back. Um, And I have to be honest, even for my, my patients and viewers who've actually taken people to court and had them convicted, that doesn't always offer closure either. We don't know what's going to allow us to be able to move on. Now, my biggest encouragement is for you to do this work in therapy to start doing the trauma work or continue if you're not already. I know it can feel like, well, that's not, that's not what I mean. I mean, closure from this closure really happens when we're able to move on with our life and not feel, you know, held back or emotionally vulnerable to, certain things or triggers or whatever, you know, that remind us of the sexual assault. And so healing from the trauma is truly the best way for us to find closure and to move on. Period. Now, that might not be just talk therapy. That might be EMDR, somatic experiencing. it might be any number of things. Some exposure therapy. But all in all, that would be my best advice. Now, when it comes to reclaiming our power, I cannot encourage you enough to Well, I don't know if this would be maybe I'm going to offer up a resource. Now, the the Courage to Heal workbook, which you guys know I love so much, is really catered towards those of us who've experienced childhood sexual trauma. But I do find the final chapter, I think it's chapter 20, has a, a portion in there for how we can heal and have a healthy sexual relationship in our life. Now, I encourage you at the very least just to give that a look and a read and see It might be something you want to go through with your therapist. This is in the future. This is again, reclaiming your power and being able to have sexual relationships that you want to have in a way that feels good for you and is a choice that you get to make. And that chapter kind of walks you through how to do that with a loving partner or a partner of your choosing. You know, doesn't mean you have to be in a relationship with someone, but it's a way, it's just a way for you to, again, take that power back. And really the The acknowledgement and expression of your anger and your hurt and then the processing through again of that trauma is really the way we take our power back because as we do the trauma work and maybe do exposure therapy, we slowly open our world back up and live our life the way that we would have lived it if that never happened. And I don't know if anybody else out there agrees with me, but I truly believe that that is not only the best revenge, but also the best way to reclaim that power. And I know you're you were hoping it was something, you know, like you said, like burning the evidence or we can write letters to our uh, the people who assaulted us and then set them on fire safely in like a container or outside with water um, to put it out safely or rip them up or um, any number of things like that. That could be another way to kind of get it out. But. Yeah, those are my thoughts. And I wish, I mean, like, I wish there was an easier answer. I wish I could tell you, you know, go spit in their faces and punch them in the groin and you'll feel better. But I'm here to tell you that you might feel a little bit better, but this won't help you reclaim your power and move on with your life. Now, there was a comment on this and it said, um, as an add-on, did I, oh, sorry, English isn't their first language. So it says, um, can I have... How do I get the chance to have a good romantic and sexual relationship in the future after sexual assault? And says, so, sorry about my English. I'm from Israel. Your English is great. We got it. I got the question. We're going to get through it. And I mean, I don't speak Hebrew, so your English is wonderful and my Hebrew is, is zero. So you're doing wonderful. Now, I kind of already touched on this uh, along with trauma work with a therapist that that you feel, you feel connected to. You feel okay being there. You feel neutral or maybe safe there. We're going to want to slowly engage in relationships of a sexual nature. And again, that that last chapter of the Courage to Heal workbook, it's also in my book, Traumatized. I I talk about healing relationships after trauma. That could be a great place too. I forgot about that because that's why I, I know that chapter so intimately is because I read it and reread it and incorporated a couple of their tools and techniques in my book, Traumatized. But walking through that chapter using my book or the courage trail workbook will be incredibly helpful in doing that with your therapist and slowly finding ways to not only process what happened but calm our system down and then engage in things that are a little triggering and then calm down right we're going to have to slowly that's that exposure therapy we slowly expose ourselves to things that are that stir up that fight flight freeze response or make us, you know, we go into the hypervigilance mode. We're going to want to slowly expose ourselves to those things, calm our system down, try it again, calm our system down, so that we're proving to our brain that the things that we think are going to be harmful and hurtful and re-traumatizing aren't actually. And this will help us build our confidence. This will help us take our power back and help us just feel more like ourselves. And so um, I also do want to Express that I have had a couple of patients who have taken like kickboxing and um, self-defense classes and taking courses that help them feel better able to protect themselves felt help them feel more uh, in control or like they took their power back a little bit like they felt a little bit safer I don't think that heals the trauma that we sustained but I think that that can at least help us maybe do more of that exposure work feeling like we we are powerful enough to protect ourselves. or something about being that protector for ourselves that can be healing also. So I want to put that out there too. Let's move on to question number five. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This question says, Hi Katie, I would love your opinion on causes of dissociation during sex. I am a gay woman, but have dealt with a lot of shame growing up. And I used to sleep with men where I experienced dissociation. However, now that I'm actually being myself and being intimate with women, which is more true to myself, I am still experiencing dissociation and panic attacks during sex. And I struggle with emotional intimacy. Any ideas about why would be really, really helpful. Thanks, Katie. Of course. I have a feeling We have some uh, shame still hanging around, even though you're being yourself. And our only experiences with sex before us being ourselves more and, and, um, you know, being intimate with women, when we would sleep with men, we dissociate. It's like we traumatized ourselves, kind of. And so I believe dissociation occurs because what's happening in our life is too much for our brain to process in the moment. We either don't have the the capacity or the tools or the resilience really to manage it, our brain pulls a ripcord Voila, we dissociate. So it's really incredibly common in situations that are triggering, right? If we're overwhelmed and our trauma response is like hit, then we're going to dissociate. And so the fact that you're dissociating during sex, I'm just, I have some thoughts and I'm going to have to you're going to have to do some like soul searching on your own. But I'm going to ask you some questions that hopefully help you figure this out. Now, number one, my first question would be, um, is there a certain act that is leading to this dissociation? Because I have a lot of patients that struggle with penetration that can be triggering boom dissociation. Or is it just the physical intimacy itself having someone like touch on us, cuddle us, kiss us, tell us they love us, I'd like to know where, if there is something specific, if it's just the sexual acts of any kind caused association, that's also helpful, but just think about it. That's a helpful note. Okay. So I want to know that. Then I want to know about the shame growing up. Is it, did you have, you know, people in your life who didn't accept you being attracted to women? We have like homophobic people in our life. I don't know what, where is this coming from? And My hypothesis is that it still exists, but I want to ask you, does that still exist? Is there still part of you that feels like something's wrong with you for enjoying your relationship with women? Because this only happens during sex, I'm curious about that. And then the avoidance of emotional intimacy. I'm wondering if we have some trauma, maybe due to growing up as a lesbian, but pretending to be straight. I honestly have talked to a lot of my friends in the LGBTQ plus community and the amount of trauma, like 90% of people in that community have sustained is just mind boggling. I mean, I don't know if anybody, if anybody's aware of this, but within that community, mental illness rates are higher. I want to say, and I'm probably going to get these off by a few percents, but like anxiety and depression are up like to a heterosexual person increased by like 23%. Suicide rates in the trans community are incredibly high. Uh, trauma, PTSD, incredibly high. I want to say it's like high, it's like 14% higher. Like I said, I'm probably getting this off by a few percents, but those numbers are high for a reason because growing up thinking that we can't be who we are, something's wrong with us because of who we are, or you'd rather die than be who you are, that is toxic to us and it's difficult to develop a healthy sense of self and, and healthy relationships. And so I have a lot of questions about your shame growing up like this and, and sleeping with men feeling like that was what you had to do. That was all that was acceptable and okay. I would wonder if there's, I think there's gotta be some, at least emotional abuse where your parents maybe yelled at you or people in your life, you know, um, there, was a, there were messages that were received from someone that would, being who you were wasn't okay. I don't know if that was in church or at home or both or whatever, but I think there's trauma here. And so that that's my hypothesis. And those are my thoughts. I hope that's helpful. I know it's not a ton, but really, again, the work is going to happen for you in therapy as you accept who you are on your own terms. Right. And I know that sounds silly. Like, but I do accept who I am dating women. No, I mean, truly like there's going to be some inner child work, like young you who dated a dude when you didn't want to, like, we need to talk to her. We need to offer her some compassion and support and tell her you see her and nothing's wrong with her. She needs to hear that. And so, yeah, that that's where the work's going to come in. Now there's a comment on this and it says. To add to this, I have never been in a relationship with a woman, but I fear that if it gets to a certain point sexually, that I will panic. I feel like the desire and excitement to engage will be there, but I feel that like if I take it sexually, then it's going to end because it's going against my beliefs. How do I get over this fear and know that I can still engage and not feel like what I'm doing is wrong and that it is unforgivable? We have got to get into therapy. This sounds like a... Uh, religious-based judgment and trauma. And I've talked a little bit about religious trauma. I have a whole video about religious trauma on my main channel. You can check it out if that's something that would interest you. But the fact that you feel like the desire and excitement to have one of those relationships is there, but that you can't really do it. And I would take some time to, to think about this and to do that internal work where you I want you to be curious and question, right? Um, Am I attracted to women or men? What is it that attracts me to them, um, you know, in this way or that way? What really are my beliefs or what is it that I've just been told my whole life and never had a chance to question? Like, do you believe that having a sexual relationship with a woman Will make you go to hell, or is against what the Bible says? Or I'm not sure about your religion, so I'm just basing. I grew up in Christianity, so that's what I'm kind of basing this on. Have you heard those messages? Is that why? You know, but I. You need to take some time to kind of unravel and untangle what are the beliefs that we currently still hold. Because as someone who was raised in church, I can tell you, I was raised a certain way. And then, as I grew into an an adult and made decisions on my own, I got to decide what I thought was truth and helpful. Like, I think you should treat people the way you want to be treated. I do believe that we should try to mimic, if you believe in God, like God's agape love for people. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of positive things that can come out of Christianity. You know, the community feel the. Support of other people, the turn the other cheek, you know, don't lash out in anger. There's a lot of messages that I learned from church that are still very much a part of who I am. However, there's a lot of things I learned in church that I think are bullshit. Essentially, don't cuss, can't have sex before marriage, no drinking, the like purity culture of like, I don't know. And and this is my interpretation and my what I heard myself. Obviously, this could have been through filters or things, but. Uh, you know, you had to save yourself for marriage. And if you didn't, then you would never find a good husband. And you couldn't marry someone who didn't believe exactly as you, or you'd be unequally yoked and all these weird things. I essentially, I don't believe him. I don't agree with. And I, I personally don't bring that with me into obviously today or tomorrow, right? So just because those were beliefs that other people had, that they preached in the sermons that I heard, doesn't mean that I have to also agree. I can agree with some. What's so saying like you, um, eat the fish, spit out the bones or whatever, like take what you want, leave the rest. That's what I've done. I've taken what I've wanted and I've left the rest. Um, So take some time to try to untangle that for you, because it's going to be in that process that then we're able to do that work about our own sexuality and figuring out who we are and what we enjoy. And are we only attracted to women? Are we bisexual? Are we, you know, homosexual or what, what do we, what is it? and you get to explore that and question that and again remember you don't have to make a decision you don't have to proclaim it you don't you can change you can be curious you can have relationships with some some people and then maybe decide that didn't work you can do whatever you want it's your life and take your time to sort it don't let other people in their beliefs that you don't agree with affect you today. But it can take some time to untangle, and I want you to offer yourself some love and compassion as you do that untangling. Okay? Okay. Moving on to question number 6. This question says, "Katie, why is it so triggering when others show concern or try to be nurtured after childhood trauma and emotional neglect?" Interesting. If my therapist asks me if I'm doing okay during a difficult week, I during a difficult week i freak out because she has picked up on it i don't like to share information or emotions and i am terrified of being easy to read nurturing just feels strange or alien and i don't know how to respond i'd love to hear your insight on this thanks so much or thanks for all you do of course so when we've when we've had a bunch of childhood trauma and been emotionally neglected the way that we protected ourselves was by stuffing everything down and pretending we were always okay. Right? Think about it. If no one's gonna come when we cry, no one's supporting us, we never really get the nurture and love that we that we craved and needed, it can go one of two ways, right? We can crave it so deeply we seek it out in any situation, struggle with healthy boundaries, right? Because we want to let people in real quick to get that that need met. Or what this person's experiencing, we're like Fuck that. I don't need that at all. Shut that down. Stuff it back. Forget about it. I don't want people trying to help me cuz they're just going to let me down and just going to hurt me. This um what I would call toxic independence where I have to be independent because that's the only way I survive. Those are the two reasons. There are two kind of ways it can go. Right? So, in this person's case, when your therapist asks you if you're doing okay, you're like, "Fuck this." Last time I let someone in or the last time I asked for anything was when I was a kid, and I just got ignored, or I got yelled at, or you know I got abused in other ways. Why would I want that? And that's why it's triggering. It's essentially something that is so foreign, and that we did not get a good response out. Of. We don't have a good history or a track record with this type of experience. And the only way we know how to survive is to stuff it down and pretend it's okay. And if people pick up on the fact that we're not okay, we think we failed. And we can go into that fight, flight, freeze. We're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I'm going to get abused again. Does that make sense? It's like, that's our only experience with this. That's the only way we know how to survive. What else are we supposed to do? And so letting your therapist know that nurture itself is incredibly triggering and um, feeling like, I mean, I personally would want you to do some homework on this, some journaling. I would have questions about, what does healthy nurture look like? I'd want you just to tell me, do you have any ideas? Could we sit in a coffee shop and watch, you know, a mother take care of her children? Do we have anybody in our life, a friend, another um, co-worker, someone in church or somewhere that we've watched love on their children? Do we know what it looks like? I was talking about my friend, how her daughter was like asleep on her chest. Do we have any images that would come up with that? Could we put it together, try to figure out. We might not know, right? But what would it look like? Tell me about it. I want you to write about that. Then I'd also want you to, you know, uh, tell me a little bit about what comes up for you when your therapist does this, right? Because you're saying that she picked up on it and you're terrified of being easy to read. I I would say, tell me more about that. What would it mean if you are easy to read? Okay. Okay. And then if you're like, well, that would mean that then you knew how I felt. Okay, well, then what would that mean? Every time you give me an answer, I want you to say, well, then what would that mean? Hmm. Okay, well, well, then I might be hurt. Okay, well, then what would that mean? You know, being hurt, who would hurt you? And I want you to do that. We call it like downward arrow questioning. It's best to be done with a therapist, but it's something I think we can kind of do on our own a little bit to uncover what this is triggering and what it brings up for you. And please, please, please let your therapist know this is happening because it's going to be again, we this is an overreaction, not a bad thing, super helpful. And this overreaction tells us there's something greater going on. And we have to dig into we kind of know why childhood trauma, emotional neglect. But I want to know specifically the nurture component, why that feels so unbearable. And then, you know, we've there's a lot of parts work and things that therapists can do where you bring in your protector. A person it could be yourself, could be someone else, could be like um, a big bear, could be a dog, could be, you know, I don't know, it could be anything. Whatever you think of when you think of a protector, someone who would protect you. You can bring them into those difficult situations and memories and they can be there for you while you navigate this nurture component. Um, But yeah, take your time with it. Uh, There are other members of our community who are doing the same work right now. That's why it's kind of makes me giggle, not because it's funny, but because a lot of us are, you're not alone. A lot of us are working on the same types of things. Now, there was a comment on this. It says, as an add-on. Why is it so triggering to have my therapist make eye contact or to try to get me to take deep breaths? Anything in a nurturing manner makes me anxious or even dissociate. Just being perceived by my therapist makes me uncomfortable, even though I know I I trust her. She's playing with her toy. I can't help it. Is this because of tr- the trauma I've been through? And if so, why does it happen? Yes, I would assume this is because of the trauma you've sustained and it's happening because that nurture is probably something we never received. We don't trust it. Maybe when we received any nurture, that meant it was followed up with abuse. Or maybe when we said we needed some of that nurturing, we were abused, right? There can be a lot of different associations that we have drawn over the years. And so just like I was answering that first part of the question, where I was like, tell me what nurture looks like. I want you to tell me what nurture looks like. Be curious about the specifics of, you know, making eye contact. I think my my guess here for this person is there's something triggering about being seen, and I would assume that in your life your trauma meant that if es- essentially tried to hide away. Like I have a lot of eating disorder patients who stopped eating as a way to like try to disappear because of the physical or sexual abuse they sustained, or even emotional abuse, being yelled at. You just want to disappear, and so I have a feeling the fact that your therapist makes eye contact with you says to your system, I haven't disappeared enough. This isn't safe for me, right? It's sounding the alarm because it feels like it's under threat even though it's not. And so again, we have to let our therapist know this is happening and her trying to make you take deep breaths. Let her know that it doesn't work. I... Honestly, with my trauma patients, deep breaths are fucking garbage. They don't work at all because we're not ready to be in our bodies yet. Our bodies are uncomfortable. Are you kidding? Dissociate. So tell her that maybe maybe we should try a full body shake or maybe we snap a rubber band if that's not triggering also find some other ways she's trying to get you to calm your system down we're going to have to try some different things um one of my patients love the like thinking putty stuff you can get you can buy it on amazon it's just called thinking putty or you can get silly putty at like walmart or target it's a little cheaper too so um especially since everything's expensive right now but you could pick that up for like i don't know it used to be like 99 cents let's say maybe now it's two dollars i don't know but get some silly putty or some thinking putty bring that there can be other ways to soothe our system um yeah, even bringing like a a thermos filled with cold water so that you can drink cold water that the changing of temperature can sometimes be soothing. It's like a grounding technique as well. But yeah, so those are just some of my thoughts. I hope that helps. I think that's why the breathing and stuff is super triggering. And yeah, again, just being curious about what this is tied to because these overreactions are really helpful. It's helpful information. There's nothing wrong with you. We just have to figure out why your system is responding this way. And the The truth is, it's responding this way because in past experiences that felt very similar, you were harmed. And so because being seen, being heard, being cared for was not part of what was good for you. And if you were seen, you were hurt or abused in some way. If you asked to be cared for, they told you you you're too demanding or how dare you, right? We were abused. And so that's why it's bringing that up. That's my hypothesis. But again, do the digging yourself. Be curious, not judgmental. Nothing's wrong with you. We're just working our way through. Moving on to question number seven says, hi, Katie, can you talk about why it might be that I am repulsed by or uninterested in sex, but my older sister isn't, even though she experienced sexual assault when we were children, and I only experienced it indirectly through the effect that it had on her. She had severe mental health difficulties and the dialogue around this was that it was as a result of her experience of sexual assault. So a couple of thoughts here. Now, number one, your older sister may have been in therapy, I don't know, and worked through it and now she's able to have a happy, healthy sex life. That's very possible and I've seen it happen. So if you're out there thinking it can't happen, it can happen. Finding the right therapist and one foot in front of the other will get you there. Now, I also want to acknowledge, and I have a video about this called hypersexuality as a result of sexual abuse. For some of us back at the beginning, remember talking about bringing, taking our power back from a sexual assault when we've been assaulted or abused in any way. Some of us will feel like we are going to take back our power by being hypersexual because then I get to decide when I have sex and what I get to do. And I'm making this decision. And we can be kind of impulsive, still acting out of our PTSD response. But because we're choosing it, part of our brain feels like, haha, I'm doing this right. I'm taking my power back this way. Um, I'm owning my sexuality. And so I've had a lot of patients who struggle with hypersexuality as a result. We can also find that sex is one of the only ways we were ever shown love. So that's the only thing that we think expresses love. And so earlier on in relationships than maybe we would want, we can find ourselves in sexual relations with people, if that makes sense. So having sex earlier on in relationships than maybe we want to, because we think that that's the only way to express that we care for someone. Okay. Now, into this question a little bit more. So that could be why it could be hypersexuality as a result. It could be that she's processed it through and she's she's healed. Now you have to do your work because even though you experienced it indirectly, remember trauma happens when we fear for the life of ourselves or someone we care for. It's the life or safety really, but we don't need to get into the logistics of this. You obviously care for your sister She's older. You're younger. You watched this happen and you didn't know what to do and you probably felt helpless. And I'd assume you probably dissociate a lot because that free state of that helplessness. And that's just my hypothesis. I don't know. I don't think it says it in here, but I would assume that that's that's you know, that was your experience. You also experienced a trauma, multiple traumas, and you're going to need to do your work to process through what happened. And there's probably going to be some inner child work that you're going to need to do writing letters back and forth from that child, you, because we have to offer her understanding and forgiveness. Because a lot of times when we're little, we think I should have done more. I should have tried to stop them. I should have. But you you forget just how small you were and how little resources you had and also the fear right? Think of that fear. And that fear, again, going back to fearing for our safety or the safety of someone we care about, there's your trauma again. And so I believe that your experience of sexual abuse indirectly through your sister has affected your ability to have a happy, healthy sex life. And the only way you probably witnessed any you know, sex as a younger person was through that. And that's the only experience you have. And since then, you've like just completely disconnected yourself from that. So in a way, it's like we've never we don't even know what it would be like to have a happy, healthy sex life. It sounds very probably perverse and scary. And I honestly think you could benefit from the Courage to Heal workbook as well, Um, because being repulsed or uninterested, uninterested, like I said, could be asexuality, but the repulsion and this like overreaction that we're having says there's something more going on and um yeah and it essentially it's happening because you were you were traumatized as well okay Final question, question number eight. This question says, hey, Katie, I am an adult child of two parents with narcissistic personality disorder. I am so sorry. Due to massive emotional abuse, emotional neglect, and a lot of gaslighting in childhood, I never learned to confide in other people and even less to talk about my problems. Of course, why would you? They wouldn't listen anyway, right? Or to be able to perceive them at all because of this my friendships are always very one-sided as I don't manage to talk to my friends about my problems although I always try to help them with theirs I've managed to tell my friends half a year ago that I'm in therapy but I still haven't managed to tell them why my friends are very open and supportive and tell me every now and then that I can talk to them about everything but inside of me there's like a barrier that I somehow can't overcome how can I manage to open up to other people, even though I wasn't allowed to open up at all my, in my life and was punished with physical and emotional abuse and emotional abuse for expressing my needs. Thank you for your help. Your videos have been a constant companion for me over the past years through your videos and therapy. I've been able to make a lot of progress. That is wonderful to hear. Yay. Okay. Now this is very, very common. Because, like you said, you weren't allowed to open up at all and you were actually punished and abused when you expressed any needs. So, of course, as an adult, you're like, I don't have any needs. What do you mean? And we don't want to have any more relationships like that one sided relationships. That's not that's not where it's going to be for you. That's not what you deserve. You deserve to have a balance, to have a give and a take and a push and a pull and to feel like you can share what you need and they can share what they need. Right. Those are healthy relationships. So how do we get you there? Now, the first my first recommendation is to pick just one friend your closest, most loving and supportive friend. The one that has repeatedly told you, you can tell me anything. Talk to me. They talk to you. They share their vulnerabilities. And then we're going to need to talk to our therapist about this. And what I want you to do is I want you to put together a list and you can kind of break it into like layers or chunks of like what it's almost like we're building exposure therapy and we're building this gradient of what's more, what's difficult to share and what's easy to share. Because, and I know this sounds really tedious, but because we don't know, right? And everything feels bad. I don't even know what I need, and I don't know how to talk about things. And if I talk about it, it's all about, right? It can be so complicated. So, writing this down in as many, many things as possible. So, let's start with like five things with each level. First level being, I would tell this to a stranger. It doesn't have, you know, like, uh, for instance, I would tell anybody what I did today or that we have a pupper, or, you know, what I do for a living, that I'm married, uh, you know, that I live in Austin, Texas. Like, there's things that I would share with people that wouldn't, that doesn't really matter. What are those things for you? Write those down. And you could do five, you could do 10 if you want. It doesn't matter. You can get carried away, whatever. The next layer would be, what are... What are some things that I'm okay sharing with someone that is like a repeat person in my life? Now, these would be what I would call like a peripheral friend, meaning I don't really talk to them all the time. And I don't, maybe don't even have their phone number, but like, I see them at events a lot. Like I'll say they're like a friend of a friend and they're always at the same things. Like we go to baby showers, they're there. You go to this birthday party, they're there, but they're not your friend. They're like a friend of a friend. What would you be okay with those people knowing? Sometimes that's a little bit more, right? Cause we see them multiple times. So what would that look like? I'm trying to think for me what that would look like. It might be like more about what I do because I don't always tell people what I do for a living because I don't want people to to know too much about me that way. It can be people want to share too much or people can get weird because you're online. So maybe that. Then maybe um, I would share that my dad passed away because I've worked through that. That wouldn't be that upsetting um, or too much to share. Yeah, I could share that we just moved out here. I could share where we used to live. I could share. Yeah, think about it. What would that be like for you? What would you share? Okay. Um, Then. The next layer, what's something that you share with someone that you're you're pretty close to? Meaning that you would go out on a one on one hangout with them and you've had like late night conversations or longer conversations. You could talk to them for like an hour. And that that now we're getting into deeper waters, right? We're getting to things like I would share with them that, you know, my grandma and papa passed away in the last two years and I also just lost my uncle. It's been a lot of loss for my family. I could share that because if I cried I knew it'd be okay. I wouldn't want to, but it'd be okay. I could share some difficulties I'm having with work life balance. I'm feeling kind of burnt out, right? Those are the deeper waters. Then move into what I would call your most intimate and close relationships. And that's where you can share the deeper, darker things. Mean that that would be like my relationship with Sean and my mom and my, my closest friends. I have like five or six really close friends. And that would be where I'd share like my concerns about, you know, um, my future of what I'm doing and, and feeling, like I'm not doing enough at the same time. And like kind of the, what I would call the more, uh, I don't want to say esoteric, but kind of, kind of like, uh, things I ruminate on in the middle of the night. That's what I would share. Those are things I tell my like closest friends It's like what I'm really going through and how I'm really feeling and crying if I want and knowing it's Okay. So what are those layers for you and what is involved in those layers? And the early ones are going to be super easy to fill out. As we get into those upper layers, you're going to have a tough time. Now, I want you to have that, those layers picked out, pick that one friend and then get your therapist on board because little by little, as your friend shares, you share also in the layer that you feel okay being in. And we're going to pick three to five things we're going to share. So early on, we can share a little bit about like, you know, how b- basics of what's going on in your life right now. I, you know, I'm still working at such, and such it's been okay. and I've been doing this da, da, da. and we're going to move into the next layer. You know, I want you to be able to do the exposure where you share about yourself and make space for yourself. Then calm our system down. Then we go back with our friend when they share about them. We share the deeper layer about us. You know, I've been feeling a little overwhelmed lately and yeah, therapy's helpful, but I'm still struggling. Okay. They share, we share, they share, we share. And as we use these tools to calm us down after sharing, what we're doing is really proving to our brain that in this one relationship, in these certain situations, we are okay sharing, nothing bad happened. And we're proving that we can have good experiences with expressing needs and wants does it take time? Yes. May we dissociate or max out or have to get up from the table and go to the bathroom to breathe? Yes. Is that okay? Yes. It's a slow process. Think about like, this is a frustration and I get pissy with this too. Cause as a therapist, I've tell patients this all the time. And I tell myself this as a person who's been in therapy, right? This didn't happen overnight and it won't be fixed overnight. And yes, that fucking sucks because it took years for this to develop. And for us to recognize that it wasn't okay to have needs, right? Time after time, when we were little, we probably asked for something and then got hit or yelled at or scolded in whatever way that wasn't appropriate, right? Something happened. So for each one of those, I mean, it's not like one to one, but we're, we can't expect to just go out and change the way that we, our brain is wired because we've been told forever that that's going to happen. And we have to slowly prove to it that, nope, it's not, we're going to be okay. And this is what's going to happen. And so just give yourself some time to build up these healthy and helpful experiences sharing. And also a great tool is to utilize your therapeutic relationship, because that's yet another place we can go to share some of those deeper, more vulnerable experiences and know without a doubt that we're going to you know, get that support. We're going to feel heard and understood. And that can be incredibly healing, too. So utilize that relationship and then pick one other. And little by little, we'll get you there. Okay. Thank you all so much for leaving your questions. Like I said, we're not going to do any uh, themes anymore. You can just ask questions. And if there's a certain, you know, topic you're wanting to address, you just ask it. Don't worry. We will get to them. We will get to the ones with the most thumbs ups. And I will always at least pick one, if not two at the bottom that are just randomly selected to give everybody an opportunity. Um, Also, I've been releasing the posts, asking for the questions at different times, just to kind of help people at different time zones get their questions answered as well. I'm doing my best to give you all an opportunity. I hope that it's helpful. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing this with friends. And yeah, thanks for everything. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will talk to you soon. Bye.